Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. Jesus. <laughs> Working on my announcer voice. Oh no. <laughs> I'm trying to sound mature and sophisticated. Is it working? threw me off. <laughs> I did not prepare for that in my notes. <laughs> Jesus is okay to say around children, right? <laughs> I mean, kids nowadays get exposed That's true. to That's way true. more than we did when we were their age. Oh my goodness. Oh, all right. All right. So... <laughs> That was a really lighthearted start to this episode <laughs> that isn't necessarily lighthearted. I mean, it's better than last time because okay. last time was really rough. So this yeah. time won't be as rough because we're going to be talking about a real Banff in theater. Like he he was awesome. Today we're talking about one of the alumni from the African Grove Theater, Ira Aldridge. Alrighty then. Yes. So, as you may remember, he was the young apprentice of James Hewlett, who was the main actor for the African Grove Theater. Um, so, Ira was born in New York on July 24th, 1807. He went to the, or the African Free School, a group founded in 1787 by the New York Manumission Society, among which, it's, among its members, were... John Jay, and someday to be subject to the show, this little guy named Alexander Hamilton. Um, I never heard of him. Yeah, I guess I guess there's like a musical about him, and he's on one of the forms of currency here. Hmm. I think like a ten dollar bill or something like that. I don't know. Well, we'll probably cover him later. You so, know. so what you're saying is he? I should know who he is. You should know who he, he is. He is of some significance, and <laughs> there may or may not be catchy songs with his name in it. Yes, that will get stuck in our head if we start going down that rabbit hole, so we aren't. All right. <laughs> so, this school's focus was to teach the children of slaves and free blacks. And I would love to get into a deep dive on this school, but I think other shows would cover it better than I could. Maybe like Black History Buff, possibly. Um, but regardless, Aldridge had received a classical education at this school alongside other notable black men at the time, uh, such as Dr. James McCune Smith. He was the first black man to attain a medical degree and the first black American pharmacist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then George T. Downing, who has a fascinating history... And I almost went on a tangent about him and then had to go, no, this episode is about Ira Aldridge. This is not about George <laughs> T. Downing. There's literally only one thing that I could kind of justify going into with him. And that's because he was his family was the first black family allowed to sit in a box at a theater in the Capitol. Which, as you know from Phantom of the Opera, is a big deal to be able to sit in a box seat. So, that in, was my one 
little thing that I went, okay, I I can sneak this in here. You know, and it, it just it bothers me how backwards the country it was and still is in a lot of ways that it's like, this is the first group to be allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. And like, just things that you're like, I never realized the significance of someone who was allowed to do that first. It, you just, you seem it's like, yeah, like, why shouldn't people be allowed to go to theater if they... And sit in a prestigious seat. <laughs> <laughs> you're black, you can't like theater, that's for white people. Like, God. You know, sometimes uh, I'm not I'm not gonna get into a rant on my own history because this is not history of K. And I will try to not be angry white husband. <laughs> so, oh god, that would be a great username. <laughs> Speaking of tangents, <laughs> back to the show. So, back to Aldridge before this tangent goes any further. Uh, Aldridge first got to see plays when going to the thankfully now defunct Park Theater. As we remember from our last episode, the Park Theater's owner was the racist jerk that kept sending yeah. mobs to burn down the African Grove Theater. Because he so was not jealous or anything. He yeah, was a, so... Uh. I shouldn't say thankfully defunct Park Theater. I just have a little bit of bitterness towards... So, you know, a little bit of schadenfreude there that, haha, your theater's gone too. If I wasn't supposed to be watching my language, I would say some things. So. Yes, yes, this is true. <laughs> uh, so, at the Park Theater, Aldridge was allowed to sit in the high balcony seats, which were reserved for blacks. And then he was able to go to the African Grove Theater, where he would later perform with the African Company, which is Hewlett and Brown's group that traveled through the different incarnations of the theater. His first role was as Rolla from Richard Brinsley Sheridan's Pizarro. And according to classmate Dr. James McCune Smith, wow, that was said weird. According to his classmate, Dr. James McCune Smith, Aldridge had also played Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. You'd think that I would write these things in ways that I speak, but no. <laughs> no, you do it properly, and then you just make fun of me when I write things out in a way that I will read the name properly. Oh, man. It's... Now, now you see why I do it. Now I see why you do it. All right, so... <laughs> it's not even a hard word, hard name to read. Goodness. So, by the final closure of the African Grove Theater in 1825, however, Aldridge realized that there wasn't much of an opportunity for performing in the Americas. He could either stay in the Americas and be part of blackface minstrel shows, or he could go where there was a little bit more opportunity for a black actor. So at the age of 17, Aldridge left America for Liverpool and he created a backstory saying that he was a descendant of the Fulani princes, renaming himself F.W. Keane Aldridge, sometimes just Mr. Keane, Keane or uh, African Roskius, because he was a theater nerd and a history nerd. So, Roskius was a Roman actor. <laughs> so he... he... He, um, now was this a character he created? Was this literally... His... This was his backstory. Wow. Because so... he, he just was like, you know what? I'm going to go 
gonna do this and i approve of him of being of like leaving the united states and then going and being like i am descended of mm -hmm. these great people because and just it's one of those things that'd be really really hard to verify that yeah and i'm curious whether or not that helped him with some clout or not like if it helped him I, be taken more seriously. As you'll find out, his acting is what helped him be taken more seriously. This guy is a legend. And in fact, he is, uh, if not the first, he is the only black person to have his bust at this prestigious London theater. So... And of course, I forgot to write that down in my notes, but because <laughs> I was so focused on his life is way cool. Like, his life is awesome. So after he moved to Liverpool, he met and married an English woman named Margaret Gill. Uh, he didn't have any children with her because she was around 49. However, he did father his first son with another woman while he was married to Margaret. Whoa, so he was like, how okay. He was 17. He married a 49. <laughs> yes. That cougar, go her. She got herself a, a hot young black man. <laughs> He's a baby, but you know, it, it's the 1800s, so that's not baby, I guess. I would, I would look at him and go, you're a baby. No, must protect you, because... My mothering instincts would come out. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, he, he was 17, marrying a 49-year-old. Uh, he did father his first son with another woman while married to Margaret. I wonder if she was okay with that or not. Yes, she was, because she helped raise this son with Ira. Because Ira is a really good dad. Good. <laughs> he... He is a great dad, and that's, he names his first son Ira Daniel, and Margaret and Ira Daniel had a really good relationship, and Aldridge, Ira Aldridge was married to Margaret for 40 years until she died wow. in 1865. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Mm-hmm. Go them. Yeah. I mean... We'll get to it later, but he was not faithful to her for the whole 40 years, but she was understanding of it. She was also in really poor health, so he was kind of taking care of her and stuff, so... As I smack my book. <laughs> so... Smack your book up. Let's go back to Aldridge's the theatrical career. His first show in London was as Othello, but this was a more low-key production, so his grand debut was in a play called The Revolt of Suriname or A Slave's Revenge, where he plays the lead role, Orinoco, in this production that's at the Royal Coburg Theater. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go over some stuff that happened before Aldridge came over, because people were not expecting Aldridge's performance in this. So the audience had been used to this comedian, Charles Matthews, who had done, and I'm going to use scare quotes with this, a comedic recreation of what went on in African theater, or in the African Grove Theater, which he had never been to. Gotcha. And... So he's just reaching deep up his uh, backside. Up his butt, pulling out a blackface caricature and just 
being ridiculous on stage. And claiming that it was accurate. Yeah. And so I'm going to quote Bernth Lindfors, who did an audio documentary called Ira Aldridge in Europe, How Aldridge Controlled His Identity as the African Roskius. And I believe that one is on archive.org. So when Aldridge starts appearing on the stage at the Royalty Theater, he's just called a gentleman of color. But when he moves over to the Royal Coburg, he's advertised in the first playbill as the American tragedian from the African Theater, New York City. This second playbill refers him refers to him as the African tragedian. So everyone goes to the theater expecting to laugh because this is the man they think Matthews saw in New York City. Instead, they get Ira freaking Aldridge, who <laughs> I had to I had to censor myself, who is truly an amazing tragedian. You'll see this in the play that we're going to cover tonight. So among his Shakespearean roles were Othello, Aaron and Titus Andronicus, which this is technically a revival of the show because it hadn't been performed since 1724. And with this revival, Ira basically recreated the character of Aaron, making him a hero rather than a villain. Because okay. Shakespeare was really racist, and we'll get into it in a little bit. Awesome. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. He was super anti-Semitic and pretty darn racist. His black roles, like, Othello kills his wife out of jealousy and is kind of seen as violent in the original reproductions of Othello. And then you've got Aaron, who's the Moor, who's a villain and stuff. Uh, but he, Aldridge didn't just play black roles. He also played King Lear. He played Shylock. He played Macbeth. And he played Richard III. And this was not in all black theaters either. These were in theaters with white people. Ah. Yes. So this is, this is pretty groundbreaking stuff. And it also angered some of the theater goers. Totally not a thing I've ever experienced. Mm. Because as they say in the book Black Theater USA, these English critics could not bear to see a slave perform Shakespeare. One of the criticisms from the newspaper, The Times, had said that Aldridge was a baker kneed and narrow-chested with lips so shaped that it is utterly impossible for him to pronounce English. Continue, please. All right. Uh, let's see. They also reviewed Othello, saying that he wasn't dark enough to play Othello. He was copper-toned and a bit darker than I am when I've actually been outside and am healthy. When it's not winter. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, not all of these critics hated him, however, and it was obvious that Aldridge was way talented just from a lot of these reviews. In fact, Edmund Keane, which is who Aldridge took his stage name from, the F.W. Keane, praised Aldridge and his portrayal of, Orthe of Othello, and I'd like to imagine like a 17, 18 year old Aldridge just being over the moon at that, <laughs> because that would be the equivalent for me of like Ethel Merman saying that my contralto belting is amazing. <laughs> so 
audience also audiences also felt that he was a breath of fresh air after troops like the Ethiopian Serenaders and the Virginia Minstrels had come through, because here's an actual black person performing, and he's not <laughs> any of these stereotypes. He's a real person. <laughs> oh, oh God. It's a breath of fresh air to see a black man being human and not... Not this caricature, this cartoonish... Yeah, not this... Horrible you... thing. Yeah. Yeah, and... I've realized just how I'm not able to make jokes without cursing, because I was like, about ready to make it... No, can't. Make it... No, no. Okay, I'll just sigh. <laughs> so, um... The Illustrated London News did a review that said that he differed entirely from the Ethiopian absurdities we've been taught to look upon as correct portraitures. His total abandon is very amusing. <laughs> so that kind of gives you what they're sitting here going, Wow, this is what black people really are like. You mean the Virginia <laughs> minstrels were lying? Wait, 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 wait. You mean they're just like us? But they look different. But like... But they're human? But like they can talk and they can do stuff. Whoa. Like, and I, they're... But in English. They're intelligent and they're... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, like I said last time, representation is everything. And this is why I get so hard on, like, different forms of media not representing us or not representing us correctly. And it's why I hold Rocky Horror Picture Show to a really high standard, because if you're gonna be... Mm, mm, okay, okay, no. <laughs> back to back to this. I don't need to rant on that today. So, he did a European tour in 1852 and a tour of Imperial Russia in both 1858 and 1862. Dang where he performed as King Lear in King Lear. Uh, then, after all of this success, he purchased his home, which he named the Lorana Villa, named for his mother. Aww. And that's on Five Hamlet Road in Bromley. And I have a friend who... Uh, I'm pretty sure that my friend still lives in Bromley. I'm not 100% sure, but if he does, I want him to go take a picture there in front of that plaque in front of his house because Mama Kay and I didn't make it that far last time we went to London and I don't know when I'm going to get back so I just want I just want a picture of that plaque. That's fair. Hint hint. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh Aldridge gained British citizenship in 1863 and then Margaret died short uh, Margaret died in 1865. After Margaret died, he married his mistress, Amanda Von Brandt, and together they had four children, uh, three of whom survived to adulthood. The two surviving daughters were Irene Lorana and Amanda Aldridge, and they went on to become opera singers, with Irene being a contralto, who, according to Wikipedia, unofficially broke the opera color barrier, the official one being Grace Bambry, who was cast as Venus by Wagner's grandson in a production at the Bayreuth uh, Festival in 1861, which earned her the name Black Venus, as well as outrage from racist white opera goers, which totally not a thing I know what that's like. Anyway, 
Amanda went on to also be an opera singer as well as a composer, and her pseudonym was Montague Ring, and she took care of Irene as Irene's health deteriorated from rheumatism before her death in 1932. Uh, Ira's youngest son, Ira Frederick, also went on to be a composer. Nice. So, and uh, Ira Daniel went on to be a teacher and then moved to Australia. So all of his kids just did really well. So Ira moved to Russia in his last years, and he had actually planned on doing a American tour after the Civil War, but unfortunately he died in 1867 while in Poland. And after this, in Europe, he started to just fade into obscurity for a while. Mm. News of Ira's death didn't get back to the States for about 30 years. Wow. And then as soon as people were finding out that their hero had died, then it was like, okay, we're going to start honoring this guy right away. Nice. Uh, he, he was a hero to many black American actors. And so all these troops started springing up in his honor. However, there was one troop that started before his death and was in fact founded during the Civil War in 1863. That's a rough time to try and found a boy band. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not a boy band, but I haven't made a joke yet, so. <laughs> because of where I know where this is going... <laughs> Okay, so this group was called the Ira Aldridge Troop. It was a black-run minstrel group that poked fun at white Irishmen. <laughs> you know, I, it's one of those things. Like, I, I hate. I it's sad that they had to that they were doing that, but at the same time, it's like I get it. Yeah, I get it because black people had been made fun of and dehumanized for so long mm -hmm. that I'm sure that to an extent it was probably empowering to be able to do it to somebody else. Yeah, and even if it is part just... of this too is with these black minstrel groups, again, they're still doing blackface, but blackface as white Irishmen that are actually being played by black men. And instead of doing the plantation shows that were done by all the white groups that were just, oh, gee, I love being on the plantation. These were subversive shows, and they actually build themselves as fugitive slaves. Huh. Yeah, so a subversive okay. sort of group, which... So not what I initially... And, uh, yeah, not what you were... Yeah. Not what you were worried about. <laughs> so one more thing about Aldridge's impact before we move on to the play that we're going to be covering... He was political in his theater. He wanted to challenge the views that people had of black people because this was, again, the period where people were mostly exposed to minstrel shows with blackface. Uh, Dartmouth has a website where they go into a lot of Ira Aldridge's past, and that was one of the many sources that I grabbed for this. Uh, but they talked about how his portrayal of villains would humanize the villains in mm. plays. And uh, they say that uh, he would portray them as burdened by racial prejudice or societal construction. 
So instead of just, oh, I'm a bad guy, it was, this is why. Society has made me a yeah. bad guy. Society did this to me, and now I have to do this. I wasn't born a monster, I was made. Uh, he, while in Britain, he would also close his shows with abolitionist speeches. Nice. So basically being like, hey, this is what's going on, this isn't cool. We're humans, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You guys need to do better. Um, and I want to quote what this Dartmouth website talks about with his portrayals of characters and how he humanized roles to the point that they were no longer racist caricatures. Looking at you, Shakespeare, with Shylock. <laughs> so this is from a Russian critic that they quote on Dartmouth's website. Ira Aldridge is a mulatto born in America and feels deeply the insults leveled at people of another color by people of a white color in the New World. In Shylock, who's from A Merchant of Venice, uh, Shakespeare's play, he does not see particularly a Jew, but a human being in general, oppressed by the age-old hatred shown towards people like him, and expressing this feeling with wonderful power and truth, his very silences speak. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. So, let's move on to the play that we're covering. So I'm going to be reading to you Aldridge's adaptation of a French play called The Black Doctor. This French play was written by Anciette Bourgeois. I probably mispronounced that, but I haven't taken French since I was eight, so don't at me. Uh, <laughs> and this is a romantic tragedy. But... Oh. This wouldn't be an Aldridge play without a political statement that made white folks think. It's still a product of its time, and Aldridge's version of the titular Black Doctor is a tragic mulatto, which is something that we'll cover in depth later because, whoo boy, that is a trope all on its own. And I'm not excited to cover it. Um, also, a pro tip for folks listening here in Utah... Please don't call us mulatto. <laughs> I'm black. You can call me black. So I... You can call me African-American if you like, but don't call me a mulatto or and, we'll be fighting. And it's one of those things that I, I do want to uh, interject and tell anybody who's listening that is white and thought that mulatto was the polite thing to say. That's what I always grew up thinking. I always grew up being told that mulatto was like the the technical appropriate term, kind of like how a lot of people will say African-American instead of black mm -hmm. because they think that that's what a person wants to be called. Yeah. And it also, as you and I have discussed, is not uniform. There are some people who will be like, no, I'm African-American. They see black as being offensive. Yeah. You are the exact uh, exact opposite. You're like, no, I'm black. Like, call yeah. me black. Call me um, what I am. <laughs> and because at the same time, uh, I always thought that calling someone mixed was offensive, mm -hmm. but you say that mixed is not as offensive as calling somebody mulatto. Mulatto is a holdover from slavery. And it means little mule. Yeah, it means little mule. It is not a humanizing term. Yeah. It is a term basically saying that you are the mix of two different species. Yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah, not, not just... of, like, that's the thing that makes me angry with it. <laughs> No, and that and it makes perfect sense too. Um, I've always I've taken to saying biracial yeah. generally when talking of someone who I can tell is not, you know, full black, full white, full Asian, whatever. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, and you and it's always better to ask. I promise you, it is better to ask than to assume. It's kind of like 
how we say don't assume someone's gender, if you're not sure of how someone wants to be called, ask them. I, I had to insist, uh, or rather, I had someone insist on calling me a mulatto after I told her the entire history of the word because she was like, well, it's more accurate and it's more polite than me calling you black. You're like, and I just told you, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. And no, it's not. Yeah, I'm like, no, I am black. Call me black. <laughs> that is what I am. If I were to be pulled over, they wouldn't be checking to see how white I am. I would be black. <laughs> yeah. I am very obviously black. <laughs> Anyway, I don't talk to that person anymore, so. <laughs> so, like I said, this one is going to be a romantic play. It's going to be a tragic mulatto play. And it's going to be in four acts. So this will be interesting. Um, the, this one will take place in France just before and just after the French Revolution. So it's going to be right in Les Mis territory. Before Les Mis. This is Marie Antoinette territory. Ah, so let them eat cake. Let them eat cake territory. So, any questions before I read you a four-act play? <laughs> do you need to do any vocal exercises? I screamed into the void earlier today, so I should be good. I don't know if that counts as a vocal exercise, but I trust your... <laughs> Your uh, expertise. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a rare technique that I learned as a contralto that we just scream into the void and then we're good. <laughs> Why? Give me better roles! <laughs> Let me be a heroine! Ah! Okay, I'm good. <laughs> that probably blew out my mic. Alrighty, so... Let's uh, take a brief intermission, and then you can tell people what you thought about your private 1K performance of Ira Aldridge's adaptation of The Black Doctor. Yay! Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah! Today, we would like to thank our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu, and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci, Reagan, and Taylor Brandt. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. We truly appreciate it. Today, I want to promote another great black podcast called Black History Buff. This is an amazing history podcast that tells about parts of black history that aren't often covered in your average history class. Learn about people like Coretta Scott King, Yasuke, the Forgotten Black Samurai, Cathay Williams, the Buffalo Soldier, and more. This show is perfect for all ages and is one of our favorite history podcasts overall. Best yet, check out his website, blackhistorybuff.com, where you can learn even more about our history. Check out Black History Buff on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and all major podcatchers. Whew. Okay, baby. That was an hour and a half. What did you think? <laughs> Why? 
It yeah. Was, it was really good, and I liked it a lot, and you did a really good job reading it. Oh, thank you, and, baby. And I liked that a lot, and <laughs> that was a good story, even if it was just chocked full of racism. Yeah. Uh, but, you know... But, you know, the racist characters are not held up as good. They're... No. Like, it, oh, gosh, that was oh, it was really good. It, it reminds me a bit of uh, Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. but I like it infinitely more than Romeo and Juliet. Because, for one, the characters, the, the forbidden love characters, they actually knew each other. It mm -hmm. wasn't just a meet and fall in love yeah. and make bad choices. It was... They've known each other for years, so... Okay. I'm gonna try my best to recount stuff. That is fine. So, and I'm gonna need help with names? Yes. Maybe? Let's see. I actually do have it bookmarked in here because, uh... Let's see. This page has all Thank the you. character names. Oh, okay. So, the story basically opens up with... Uh, Hannibal Grimaud, who is a former soldier who was a successful campaigner and has now retired, and he owns a wine shop. That's yeah. like his retirement plan, you know. And uh, he is a racist turd, but also somehow better than other racist <laughs> turds because he freed one of his slaves who was uh uh fabian oh fabian was actually the de la ranieri family slave okay i definitely got stuff mixed up you are fine um because the de la ranieri house is the one who had owned fabian and then freed him and that's when he becomes a doctor um oh okay okay they okay because uh because for some reason, I think, so, so, uh, Pauline, Pauline's father, he's not in this. It's just no. her mother. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, thank you. You're so, okay. welcome. So, Hannibal, Hannibal is this, this, he's the one we're talking about. He's like, he was a, a soldier, a campaigner. He retired, opened up a wine shop, and he is he's only in the beginning he's not any the rest Correct. of the show you never see any of the grimads yeah again. he's there to kind of set up what it is and you find out that uh fabian is this doctor that the townspeople really like because he is not above helping the poor like mm -hmm. even if they can't pay he will still treat them and uh you're talking about uh briquette and jacques I was trying to find the guy who comes in to thank, to to look for uh, Fabian to thank him about saving his mother, but I don't know if he had a name. Um, I think that might have been Briquette. It might have been Briquette. That comes in to thank him. Yes. Because uh, Lucy, let's see. Luce, Saint Lucia. Saint Luce. Pierre Briquette. Jacques Fils. Suitor de Suzanne. Because I don't... Because so so friends so Fabian's friends are Jacquette and Christian, right? Uh, yeah, Christian is, is his, his servant. servant. K did a really good. Like, K, K 
Kay read this whole thing in about an hour and a half and was doing voices and everything <laughs> and narrating it and did such a good job. I enjoyed <laughs> listening to them do this. Like, I am so tired. Yeah, understandable, understandable. And because I am particularly bad with French names mm -hmm. because they don't ever sound the way that they look like they should because <laughs> the French... So reading these, I'm having a hard time with some of them. So okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna wing it. I'm gonna. That is fine. So as uh, Hannibal is is belittling his daughter and his wife, telling them, eh, "You're women, and you'll you'll like what I do for you. You'll accept what I give for you. Or I'm just gonna smack you because he's a good old fashioned uh, husband and father." <laughs> um, and that's when one of the guys comes into the wine shop asking about uh, the black doctor, and they're like, "The black doctor? Oh, Fabian, yeah." He's, yeah, I've been looking for him. I want to, to thank him uh, because my mother was ill and everybody else was giving up on her, living, giving her, giving up on her for dead, but not Fabian. And now she is doing much better. And he's like, I, I was working extra hard and I've scraped together more money because he didn't charge us and I wanted to pay him two weeks worth of work. Mm -hmm. Is what he wanted to pay Fabian for saving his mom. And he's like, oh, I know it's not much, but please accept it. And Fabian is like, oh, for me? Well, no. Like, you keep this money, and the mm -hmm. next time you see somebody who oh, needs it. Okay, that is later. That's with Andre. That Andre... So, um, Fabian... They basically are talking about Fabian um, because Briquette wants to thank him, but is also on his way to the uh, St. Lucie de Chevalier. And... Um, Freaking French. <laughs> Or Chevalier de Saint Lucie, that's what it is. And uh, he, they talk about, oh, we haven't seen Fabian in a long time, and it's too bad that the Marchioness. That's, that's what it is. Yeah, and that's like it's too bad because the Marchioness is dead now because she drowned, her ship crashed, and then uh, they're like, oh, and Pauline now has all of this free agency because her mom is dead, but she's betrothed to Saint Lucie. And, yeah, and then that's when... Oh, God, I didn't realize that. <laughs> oh, that hurts. <laughs> oh, that hurts. <laughs> I don't like... I don't like that. <laughs> I thought it was more... Uh chronological not like because yeah, god yeah so the beginning is the end well no the beginning's not the end well, but i mean like because if they're talking about her mother and oh she has all this free agency like it's after the ending of the show because they haven't seen fabian because he well okay so at, at the beginning they haven't seen the mar or they assume the marchioness is dead because the, her ship was headed back to Paris, and she the ship crashed, and they presumed everyone was dead. And so that's when they go, oh, Pauline has free agency now. Everything is hers. And that's kind of what emboldens Pauline to kind of set some stuff in motion in Fabian's mind, because he kind of has this glimpse of, oh, maybe things will be okay when uh, Pauline brings her foster daughter, Leah, to have Fabian cure her of her heartbreak 
over being in love with a white man, Bertrand. Yeah. And Pauline has all this free agency, and she's like, well, my mom's dead. I'm rich now, so I can support you guys if your parents don't. And then St. Lucia shows up and is like, oh, I'm going to marry Pauline, and thank you for saving my life, Fabian. And that's when Fabian's just like, oh, no, I saved his life, and now he's going to marry her, and I'm in love with her, and I'm cursed. Because I'm just playing this trope. <laughs> but... Because there, there's stuff with Pauline's mother later. Yeah, because she... they realize that she didn't die. Okay. And they talk about that at the beginning of Act 2, where they're like, oh, it's a miracle that she somehow survived this shipwreck and, and is she's... now in Paris. And, and she's and now is... coming to ruin her daughter's life. Yep. Because uh, cause so... cause I'm going to mess up with the chronological stuff. So, no worries. Um, after... So at that point, because... Because Act One ends with now this the the scene that's really troubling. Okay, and okay, problematic as heck. I was gonna ask you with that because yeah. it seemed like Fabian was going to kill both himself, yes, and Pauline, yes, because this isn't allowed to be a good relationship no matter what. So yeah, because he's like, I love you, but I'm. A black man, you're a, a white aristocrat, and even though we've known each other for a long time, like, I can't be with you, but I can't bear to see you with anyone else, so mm -hmm. we're both gonna, was it like drown? Like, yeah. drown to death? And then she's like, no, I also love you, Fabian, I've loved you for so long, and then he's like, oh, well, if you love me, then I don't want us to die. Yeah, and luckily Bertrand comes by. <laughs> so... Okay, because I, I remember listening to that part, I was like, oh, holy crap. And then it goes into the next scene. It's like, okay, I guess they both lived and they're happy and they love each other. But then she is upset because she's been, uh, Pauline is upset because she's been keeping this marriage a secret. Yeah. Because it's illegal. Mm -hmm. And then she finally can't deal with the quote unquote shame anymore. And she confesses it to her mom that she's married to Fabian and her mom's mm -hmm. like, we're, this, this isn't a real marriage. Yeah. I'm, we're going to get this dissolved. You're going to marry a nice white man. Mm -hmm. like You're going to marry your cousin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not joking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that was one of those things where I'm like, wow, wow. You'd rather, uh, and that's St. Luke. Yeah. St. Lucia. St. Lucia. Who? Freaking French, man. It's L U L U C E. <laughs> well, and see, I'm not sure if it's Lucia or Lucha because I go, I, I look at these romance language names and I go into either Italian or Latin with them. <laughs> and they're just like, no. So you've got names like Christian. I can understand that. Audrey, or uh, uh, Andre, Andre. I can read that. Then there's Ch Chevelle Villier Saint Lucille. Chevalier de Saint Luce. There's an R in there. Why is it Chevalier? Damn you, French. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hate French. Okay. <laughs> so, after Pauline confesses to her mother and her mother uh, throws a fit about the fact that her daughter married a black man, uh, 
Fabian is like, fine, I will, I do not want, I love my wife so much, I love you so much, Pauline, I don't want to shame you, I don't want your life to be ruined, so I will annul our marriage ourselves, and I will go, he basically is like, I will go off and die somewhere, a broken man, kind yeah. of thing. Because for whatever, now I guess he's, makes me laugh that at first he's like, I love you, but we can't be together, therefore we're both mm -hmm. going to die, and now instead he's like, fine, you, you be your your rich self and I'll go over here and die. I think it's because he sees that it would destroy her to be, because she even brings that up like, oh, I can't be, I can't not have my mother's love anymore. Yeah. And so he's just like, ah, dang yeah. it. Okay. Even though I don't want to do this, I'll do it. Yeah. And so he, no, you know, quote-unquote, annuls their marriage and then goes off. And what's funny is the mother, I don't know what her game plan... Oh, wait, I know exactly you what You do it is. know what her game I plan know exactly, is. Because at first she's like, you know, tells her servants, subdue him, don't let him leave, use force if necessary. And then uh, after they, they, I guess, do subdue him, uh, Act 3 begins... Is it Act 3 where we're in the in Bastille? In the Bastille, yeah. Yeah, Act 3 is... And who was the perspective? Because it sounded like he was some some uh, rich hoity-toity person. It was St. Luce and... So her cousin... Her cousin got thrown in jail for getting into a fight. Oh. And... Well, who, was it her cousin that was talking to the guy about being his, uh, his manservant, basically? Oh, Briquette was the manservant. Okay. And Briquette... <laughs> So, at the start, you've got this little love triangle with Suzanne, Briquette, and Jacques. And Briquette is all like, oh, I'm, I've got the consent of myself to marry Suzanne. And Jacques is like, okay, whatever you say. And then Act 2 begins with Jacques and Briquette talking, and Jacques is married to Suzanne because he actually asked for the father's consent. <laughs> and Briquette's like, well, it's no matter. I mean... We're in Paris, and since we're in Paris, you know, it's better for single men anyway, because I've got all these ladies, and you're stuck with another woman, so it's fine, whatever. You only get to be with one woman, I get to be with whoever I want. Yeah, and then, uh, when you get to Act 3, it's Briquette and St. Lucia in the Bastille, and Briquette is St. Lucia's manservant, basically, and he, and it's, it's so great, because... Uh, St. Lucia is complaining about how he doesn't get ice with his drink that day and stuff like that. And Briquette's like, I still don't see why I had to come with you. <laughs> My girlfriend was waiting for me underneath this tree and now oh she's been waiting for two months she's, and six days. She's been waiting, yeah, because he's been <laughs> thrown into prison to serve his sentence or whatever it was. They don't say how long it's going to be, but yeah. Mm -hmm. She's just this incredibly patient woman and is just out there waiting for him to get out. <laughs> yep. Um, and then, but I guess so in their cell, like underneath them is mm -hmm. where uh, uh, Fabian is being kept. Mm -hmm. Fabian is like, he was basically put into like solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. He was thrown On in like... damp straw. <laughs> yeah, he was thrown in like the deepest, darkest part of the frickin' dungeon there where natural light does not reach. And... It's pretty messed up, and he's kind of started to lose it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as they're in the prison talking about how much it sucks to be in prison, they hear commotion, and they start to hear, like, shots outside and stuff, and there's, like, a revolution going on. The people are lining cannons up 
uh, and firing at the Bastille to like yeah force an entry and stuff, and they're successful. These revolutionaries get into the Bastille and start to free everybody, and they're they're shouting victory, liberty, victory, liberty, and they go and they free uh, Briquette and they free uh, uh, Jacques Saint Lucia. Saint Lucia. Jacques nowhere to be seen Saint after Lusa. Act Two. They free Saint Lucia and Briquette. And as they're freeing them, they're talking about that there's there's somebody underneath too. There's somebody mm-hmm. in the in the level below us. And then they go down there and they get uh, Fabian, but he's like kind of gone mad, mm-hmm. like from psychological trauma due to being imprisoned, you know, in solitary confinement more or less for. They don't say how do they say how long he was in there? No, we're led to believe that it's years though. It's quite a while, yeah. Yeah, We're led to believe it's quite a while, and so they uh, rescue him and stuff, and they kind of whisk everybody away, like, uh, to... uh, Because, okay, and then it it basically cuts after that. That's the the scene three, act three, ends with them rescuing Fabian out of the Bastille. Mm -hmm. Act four picks up at the, uh, the, uh, Rainier... Is it Rainier? Rainier? Rainier. Pauline's mother's house. Yes. It picks up at the Pauline's mom's house. Oh, and the reason why Fabian went nuts, is, like completely nuts, was uh, Andre had sent a letter through one of the cracks in the wall to Fabian. And Fabian had a light and he's reading the letter by lamplight and it's saying that somebody died at the Marchioness's house. And the lamp is taken away by the soldier and Fabian thinks that Pauline died, not the Marchioness, even though it's the Marchioness who died. And Andre's trying to tell Fabian that as he's bre- breaking him out, but Fabian's just gone. Like, Fabian's not here, man. <laughs> he's yeah, leave he's gone now. <laughs> okay. And so the Marchioness is uh, Pauline's, Pauline's mom. mom. Okay. To make sure. So that was the letter saying that... Okay, because I remember the, the part with the letter and then mm-hmm. him freaking out about the guard taking his light because he didn't get to finish reading the letter. Mm-hmm. And, okay, that's why he goes he goes bonkers from, from grief stress. Yeah. Basically. So, and then Act 4 picks up with um, them at, I guess it's now Pauline's house since mm-hmm. her mom died. Um, and they're concerned because they are aware of all the commotion and the fighting that's going on out there. And it looks like the angry militia mob is now approaching their residence Mm -hmm. and uh she's worried that she's going to be killed because she's an aristocrat and uh the mob is successful in breaking into her uh her house Um, but then when they go to confront her she recognizes is it is it saint luke so saint lucia and aurelia have hidden or basically hiding uh, Pauline away at one of their chateaus that's near where they can escape to England. And um, they're saying, you know, we've got a boatsman or a fisherman. He's coming. He's going to save us. And the fisherman is Andre. And Andre comes in and is going over what he's going to do to save them and says, you know, my brother is going to help us out. He's kind of insensible and you start to realize that this brother is fabian and you remember him talked about like i was gonna take him to the asylum kind of thing mm -hmm. but then he would just been trading one prison for another yeah and so 
he and St. Lucia walk off to discuss how what payment's going to be like. And then while they're doing that, Fabian comes in and he just kind of is reliving all of the trauma that's been happening throughout the whole play. <laughs> and um, then uh, as, Saint, as Andre comes back in with St. Lucia and the women are coming back in, Andre realizes that this was the Ranieri family, and he's like, uh-uh, no, you guys put my friend in prison, the guy who saved my mother and, you know, is one of my best friends, and I, you know, I'll just throw you to the wolves because I have it right here on this paper that your family condemned him to be forgotten in the bath That's, studio. Yeah, from the mom, she said, I want this man to be forgotten. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh. Yeah, and so he, uh... And Pauline is trying to get through to Fabian the during all of this. And Andre finally realizes, oh, this was a mistake. Like, okay, I will try to talk to the people outside to get them to calm down. And, of course, the people outside do not believe him that Pauline would be married to this black man that was in the Bastille. And so... Uh, and Fabian has the proof on him. He has the marriage certificate, and they're hoping that he can show it to them. And as Pauline's trying to get through to Fabian, the people are storming in through, and that's where... And I, I know that she's trying to get through to him, and he she, she does succeed. He, like, yeah. kind of comes out of it, and he's like, oh, Pauline? And she's like, oh, you recognize me, mm -hmm. and da-da-da-da-da. And, and then the, this last part was a little janky with me because the mob comes in and they're like oh yeah well if he's your your husband prove it prove it and then fabian is like oh no she's not my wife because well, he sees the chevalier and he goes oh he's always here and then he looks over and he sees the marchioness like her picture and he's still a little out there and so he thinks it's actually her and is just like Oh no, I don't want you to kill your daughter. So, cuz he has no idea what's go like he, Fabian's not there anymore. His his uh PTSD and fragile psyche is uh, Yeah, he has no idea what the what the mob is doing cuz he's just not cogent anymore at this point. And so he's like saying, "No, no, she's not my wife. Don't it it's okay. She's she's not breaking the law. It's fine." And then that's when uh, one of the the guys, like one of the, the revolutionaries or whatever who hates the rich, is like, fine, then we'll just kill her now. And he pulls out a pistol and mm -hmm. shoots at uh, Pauline. And then Fabian is just, no, <laughs> takes the bullet for Pauline. Mm -hmm. And that's when they like open up his vest and he pulls out the marriage certificate and is like, I am her husband and mm -hmm. is bleeding to death in Pauline's arms. Yep. And dies. Yep. And I knew, I knew, I knew that he was going to die because it was a tragedy. Yeah. And, and it makes me sad. It was a tragedy. He's mixed. He's going to die. Because as we'll talk about <sighs> when we get to For Tragic Unborn Mulatto. Children. Yeah, that is the, uh, it's, it's sort of, the rule of if your character is mixed race, they have to be dead by the time the curtain falls. No. Yep. It's not the case anymore. Yeah. But it was 
I want to say until the 60s or 70s, that was the case. But, like, I know that I had a really hard time recounting it because, mm-hmm. one, French. Two, you No were, visual. Yeah, no visual. But, like, just listening to you read... I, like, I really enjoyed that. Like, Thank you. I really enjoyed it a lot. And I'm sitting here, like, going, man, like, that'd be... Like, granted, there is some really whack stuff in it. The biggest mm-hmm. one that I get a hang up on is Fabian's, like... I love you, but I can't have you, so I'm going to kill us both. Yeah. And then <laughs> that's, that's yeah, the one that makes me the... mostly go, huh? But And then everything else in the show, I think, is is relatively plausible and, and mm-hmm. straightforward. The, the pacing of the show... Pacing of the show is interesting. But, like, so, so... But I am right, though. Like, the beginning part in the wine shop, that is after the ending. That is it? at the beginning. So like, it really is the beginning, the mm-hmm. beginning? Yes. Okay. They had not uh, been playing around with uh, different time. Like, the closest that you get to playing around with, I guess you'd say time travel in your play, where you'd start it at the end and then work, or then go to the beginning and so on. start it in the middle, then do a recap, and then continue. Yeah, would be uh, with like Romeo and Juliet, where they do the uh, two houses, both alike in dignity and fair Verona, do we lay our scene? That whole bit where they literally tell you what is going to be happening by the end of the play, that is about it for time travel in okay. a play. I guess it was just the way that the, because uh, the way that the acts were broken up, it's like it would jump and then mm-hmm. you'd kind of be left to be like, oh, this is what's going on now. Because like, yeah. it, you know, it, um, unspecified amounts of time have lapsed but lapsed between mm-hmm. each uh act of the show yeah um so i and guess the, that... the show doesn't tell you except for the very end when they say that it's 1793 you do not know how much time passes in between the yeah. acts yeah so i that, that definitely messed with me a little bit but mm-hmm. you did a really good job thank you it. i i wonder if you might be able to sneak in some stuff well we'll see but, we'll see but Yes. So, but, damn. Like, I don't like, tragedies make me sad, because I'm a sappy person, and I want a happy ending. Yeah. And, and I want, I want the happy couple to end up together. Mm Mm-hmm. I want, you know. You love schmaltz. I love schmaltz. I am a romantic at heart, and I want the white woman to end up with the black man. Mm Mm-hmm. It's only fair because I, as a white man, ended up with the black woman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I I wish I could say that that's gonna happen in more shows, but that's not gonna happen until we get out of the early period. <laughs> because and not even the early period. I would say it's when we get to the next book of Black Theater USA that uh, we get to that, and towards the end of said last book. Because that trope lasted for a long time. Black people get nothing but tragedy. Well, no, because a lot of the shows that we're going to be covering are not tragedies. But it's just, you're not going to be seeing happy interracial couples until later. Because that would... We'll talk about it more when we cover for Unborn Children (laughs) and The Mulatto and... And it's one of those things of, like, you don't get the happy uh, interracial relationship you don't get the happy interracial couples not because anything with them but because of the society that they're in doesn't want them to exist yep 
And so it's just it through no fault of their own, mm-hmm. their relationship is not allowed. Yeah, it's it's a star-crossed lovers sort of thing, and that will last until we get to about the sixties or seventies. So after after love it after the loving family, then we get that, and that's the couple that were the first black couple legally or. First interracial couple legally recognized in the United States. That's when we're finally going to get happy endings for these people. These so, people. These pe- are pe- us. People <laughs> looking like us. <laughs> people that look like you and me. <laughs> um, so our next one that we're going to be covering is William Wells Brown. And this one will be a little bit happier. It's a Escape or A Leap for Freedom. That's a cool time. Yeah, so that one will be more happy. Okay. I mean, it'll it'll still have, because this is pre, we're covering pre-Civil War and pre-emancipation uh, right now. After we get through that, we'll get to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we'll see if I can figure out a way to recreate Into Homie for you, because <laughs> that's one of the early musicals. I have found one piece of sheet music for it. Oh. It, yeah, if anyone can point me in the direction of performances or anything for these, that would save me some time, because otherwise I have to read it and try to figure out <laughs> with the musicals until we get to the ones that are movie musicals, which will be in the uh, early 30s. So Those will an, be a lot easier. So looking at sheet music, is this an A flat or a B sharp? <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, I love you. Love you. <laughs> so, yeah, next week, well, well, not next week. Next episode. Next episode. I'm so used to saying next week, but I'm like, no, we're putting out as many as we can. And, of course... Black History Month doesn't end in February. It's just that these ones that are released in February, I'm trying to keep them PG. Cause, but yeah, I, I will be having us watch other black shows throughout the year. It's just that these are the ones that I'm like, history! <laughs> it's important. history time. Raw! <laughs> raw, raw, fight the power. Yeah, I found out that's from an anime, so... <laughs> it's like Gurren Lagann or something like that however you pronounce it I don't know yeah I've been saying that for a while and then I'm like wait that's from, that's from an anime I didn't think it was from an anime okay um, but anyway so next week or next episode I already did this we'll be doing a little bit about William Wells Brown and then the escape or a leap for freedom i vote leap for freedom they're the same they're the equivalent of an a sharp and a b flat (laughs) that joke it's a c (laughs) plus thank you all for listening (laughs) we hope that uh you enjoyed this episode i did actually record me reading this script to warren um I don't know if it will get released or not. We have to see if we could 
legally do that because it is not a public domain play. <laughs> so it, it is owned by an estate and we are poor and don't know how litigious people would be. So, um, yeah, that's, that'll, that might be a thing that we'll do. I don't know. Uh, we'll find out what sort of things we need to do to be able to do that. If you enjoyed this episode or enjoy our show, please feel free to leave a review on Podchaser or iTunes. I think it's Apple Podcast now, actually. So Apple Podcast. The purple um, icon. The purple icon. Uh, or you can, I think CastBox might have where you can review. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, or, you know, if you haven't yet, please subscribe. That helps out a lot because of numbers and things like that. And uh, If you have subscribed, please share this with your friends. Have them subscribe as well. That way, too, you can always get that sweet, sweet tone deaf in your ears once a week uh, in every month except for February when I am forcing us on you. I'm going, <laughs> you are listening to tone deaf. You will listen to your tone deaf before you get your cookies. You will listen to Kay's sultry voice. <laughs> I wouldn't say sultry. Uh, An adorable laughter. <laughs> I love you. So uh, if you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you can find us uh, at Tone Deaf Musical. We also have our website, ToneDeafMusical.com, where you can uh, find the link to the Cast Junkie Discord server. You can also uh, buy some merch. We've got our Jello Cat shirts and hoodies which the hoodies are ridiculously comfortable uh, and jello cat mugs we also have our uh barker and love bakery t-shirts mm -hmm. that i might retire those i don't know we'll see or pull them out for a little while and release them in spoopy month we'll see um but yeah that's 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 pretty much where you can find us so thank you guys so much for listening to this episode we hope that you enjoyed it. Please check out the shows that we are talking about through each of our intermissions. They are all really awesome. I I listen to them all the time. So, you know, it's I'm I'm not just sharing these to go, "Oh, hey, listen to this." No, they are shows that I actually really like. Yeah, I've listened to some of them with the K2 and they're really good. Yeah, so please check these shows out uh and let us know if you've checked them out, too. Let us know what you thought of them. And, yeah, anything anything that you want to add, babe? I really hope that we can get the, the, the your voice out there listening, re reading play stuff, because <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot, and I think other people would like it, too. Thanks, babe. I love you. I love you. So that'll be it for today. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Death. <laughs> <laughs>